Welcome to 100 PM, the show where we interview 100 active product managers from startup to enterprise and everything in between, all from one great city every season. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com. That's the number 100, productmanagers.com. It's the web's fastest growing resource for product management topics. We've got tons of great articles about business, technology, and design, fabulous contributors, and the official must-read, listen-to, follow list, as recommended by our incredible guests, week over week. It's season one. We're here in Los Angeles. I'm your host, Susanna Bate, resident instructor at General Assembly and founder of the Development Factory. Welcome. And thanks for listening. Welcome back to the show. I am so excited about today's guest. With me is Joe Dahlquist. Joe has been working in product management for over 15 years. He got his start in the world of car audio equipment and spent a decade releasing hundreds of electronic products before eventually finding his way into the world of software. If you're managing hardware products or have ever wondered about how the experience and activities change for product managers in manufacturing, this episode is for you. If you just want some really great stories about how to succeed in the field, this episode is for you. Let's meet Joe. My name is Joe Dahlquist. I am a product manager, actually VP of product management for a cybersecurity startup that's based out of Carlsbad. And I'm here today to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart, which is product management. I've been a product manager uh, for 15 years now. Uh, started with a company called Rockford Corporation, a car audio company based out of Arizona. I spent 10 years developing new products there across a number of different brands and divisions. Uh, another four years at a company called Chamberlain, uh, doing primarily access control products and garage door openers, gate operators, and things like that. Uh, and then moved into software, where I spent four years doing a SaaS software solution in the realm of higher education. And then most recently, over the last few years, in the cybersecurity space as a product manager for a network security company that's a tech startup. So you know a little bit about this topic itself. Just like. a little bit, yeah. <laughs> 15 years is a long time. You look like a young guy, so I guess product has been good to you. It's been good to me. The, the, I, I, I think you know product management can be stressful, but it can also be absolutely fascinating and enthralling. It's something that obviously I love doing, otherwise I probably would have moved on to other things after 15 years. But I got started when I was pretty young as well. Just out of high school, I started in a technical support department for a car audio manufacturer. Uh, I think being a kind of typical 90s, 16 to 18-year-old, my two favorite things were cool cars and loud music. And I wanted to see if I could put those two together and turn <laughs> it into a career. And I did. I was able to. And kind of starting in technical support, I was speaking directly to customers every day, all day long, uh, via phone, via email. What are people complaining about in the car audio space? My amplifier doesn't work. 
I don't understand how to install the stereo. I'm not sure what size of a box to build for these big subwoofers that, that I purchased from your company. And there's a lot of kind of intricate, not only audio reproduction science and theory, but there's also a lot of 12-volt electrical uh, challenges for somebody that wants to try and do it themselves. Uh, so inevitably, you get a lot of younger guys, typically, that save up from a summer job, buy some you know, loud stereo equipment for their car. Put it all in a Honda Civic. Put it all in a Honda Civic and then try to get it all working themselves to save a, f a few bucks. <laughs> or they have a friend that knows how to install, quote unquote. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we'd field calls from them and they'd be running into some kind of a problem with the, the product itself. Or they'd have questions that weren't maybe obvious uh, or the answers weren't obvious to them. And I was, I was able to kind of catalog all of the typical complaints, typical questions. And so when I had an opportunity, I was invited to join a beta testing group at the company, get my hands on products before they actually hit the store shelves and got into the hands of customers. I was able to understand what kind of improvements we could make that would make our customers' lives easier, make the product more intuitive to use or install, address requests, feature enhancements, new types of products that customers were asking for, and then be a conduit for all of that information back to the design and the engineering and even the manufacturing teams. We were building that product in uh, Tempe, Arizona. It was all made in the U.S. at that point. And I think I must have struck a nerve with somebody in the product management side of the, the, the operation there because they asked me, have you ever heard of a job title called product manager. And I said, no, I, I, I didn't know what that was. They said, well, you get to kind of do all of the things that you seem to love doing every day for a job, you know, coming up with new ideas for products, working directly with customers to understand what kind of problems they need solved, what kind of products they're willing to buy, what they're hoping comes next in, in, uh, in, in the subsequent year. And so uh, that was my first foray into product management was uh, very late 90s, early 2000s in the car audio space. And that was at Rockford? That was at Rockford. And, and so they were manufacturing car stereos primarily? Is that what the product was? Or there were more products? They were. Primarily, so when I joined, we were a privately held company. Okay. Uh, we were just a car audio company. Speakers, subwoofers, amplifiers were... You know, I think Rockford had been around for almost 20 years at that point. They'd been started in the 70s, and they were very successful. They were one of the more familiar and famous brands in that, uh, at the time, very large industry. Rockford then had an IPO, and uh, we acquired a number of companies that were not just in the car stereo space, but in the audio space in general. So... Uh, we acquired a home theater company and then another home theater company. We acquired a professional audio company, the kind of company that makes equipment for recording studios and concerts and you know, big facility installations where you'd have speakers all over the place piping in music, headphone companies and microphone companies. And so at that point, I was um, really kind of geeking out on the the science and the theory of audio reproduction and understanding how difficult certain environments make it to try and faithfully reproduce audio the way that the artist or the recording engineer wanted it to sound when you played it back. So I, I started to kind of dabble in 
all of the other divisions and became a part of a team that did a lot of the innovation and um, even looked at companies that we were thinking of acquiring to see what kind of technology, what kind of people, what kind of benefit they might bring to the organization. And so I got to spend some time doing a lot more than just car audio. <laughs> Do you remember the first product that you worked from kind of idea all the way to execution? Vividly, actually, yeah. Tell us about it. Um, the first product that I got to work on from kind of conception all the way through to getting it on a shelf was something that was really innovative at the time. So this would have been early 2000s. Um, MP3 was something that most people did not know. <laughs> it, was, it, was not a, uh, it, it was not a buzzword yet. And uh, we didn't even have uh, flash drives or SD cards at that point. There was this way of storing digital information on a little memory card called uh, MMC or multimedia cards. And uh, they were very expensive. They were about $100 for a, a, an eight megabyte card. <laughs> <laughs> I remember these days, remember just these to days. say, yeah. Well, we, we had uh, acquired a company that had figured out how to wirelessly transmit MP3 audio files from the house and your computer to a car stereo or a home stereo over the air. Uh, using Bluetooth and using Wi-Fi, which were also relatively young at that time. We had this great idea to be able to pull into your garage or pull into your driveway and automatically update all the MP3 files that were on your computer into your car so that you could then you know, drive to work or, or, or run to get some groceries and be able to listen to the same thing that you were just listening to in the house by moving those files. Uh, so we, we had a long-winded product development cycle. Um, we had to find a hard drive that could actually sit inside of a vehicle and go over speed bumps and bumpy roads and not skip <laughs> and, you know, not have issues. So we brought that product uh, to market, and uh, the first company to sell it was Best Buy. And it was way ahead of its time. It was something that... Um, excited half of the people that looked at it and tried it and confused the other half. And shortly thereafter, uh, the iPod became so commonplace that uh, it, be, it, it really was the only way to consume MP3 audio files. And so, you know, our product kind of died a sad, slow death in the face of a very rapidly changing marketplace with, uh, with the iPod. Well, and a little interesting aside about this, which is that I worked for some time with Best Buy in the warehousing. So it's possible, Joe, that it's in another life, I was like forklifting all of your surplus inventory. It is a sad story. But at <laughs> right least back out. But it, you know, what was not a sad story are the innovative products that that led to. Um, you know, right on its heels, we were able to do a wireless sound processing device for cars that gave uh, people who loved tinkering with their car audio systems the kind of controls that they had never had before, that they, I, I think at the point, had never even dreamed were possible. The ability to shape the sound of each individual speaker in a car, uh, implement time delay so that you could sound like you were in a much better environment for listening to music than the small confines of, a, of an automobile. And 
we created to go along with it the ability to control it all through uh, an iPad or, or not an iPad a uh, uh, the iPack. Okay. <laughs> the old Hewlett Packard iPack, and so in some ways, I kind of tend to think of that as the first mobile app that maybe was ever available in the car audio industry um, that we used to wirelessly control that. And again, that was all back in the early 2000s. So it led to some great innovation and, um, you know, I think was another notch in the belt of the long journey of MP3 kind of becoming a mainstay of how you listen to audio. Well, there's Uh, so many pieces that I want to dive into, but I want to go back first. You mentioned you had this long product development cycle when you were talking about this um, Wi-Fi MP3 you know, transfer system. Well, how long, first of all, are we talking about from, hey, we found this company that has this bit of technology to we're in Best Buy? I think that process probably took about 18 months, which wasn't untypical for, for the kinds of hardware products that we were building then. Um, and I don't know that it's changed much since then either. Some of my product development cycles have been, you know, maybe six or eight months on the fast side, on the, on the very accelerated side. And then 12 to 24 months is pretty commonplace. There's a lot that goes into getting a hardware product ready to go on a shelf. Right. Well, and that's, I wanted to ask specifically about that. So, you know, you're a young guy at this time. Mm-hmm. You're excited about technology. You know, one of the questions that comes up a lot in my classroom on this show is, you know, how technical does a product manager need to be? So I'm curious about two things. The first is, how much did you actually understand about this technology? And then who are the players? You know, because you don't have, in in a SaaS product, we have user experience designers, we've got um, project managers, we've got web developers. There's a sort of different constellation of folks, I imagine, that come together to bring this highly technical product to life. You're absolutely right. Y- you don't necessarily have UX designers. Instead, you have mechanical designers, uh, designers that are going to tell you how the outside of a product should look. Then you have mechanical engineers that figure out how to actually build that product and make it manufacturable, but yet still have the elements of design that you began with, uh, something that still looks nice on the outside. You have electrical engineers and folks that are helping you do layout and selecting the individual electrical components that are going to be used, and you often are developing, designing, licensing your own circuit designs as well. Um, and in many cases, uh, with Rockford, patenting those designs and uh, creating some intellectual property. So there is still a gaggle of people that are involved. And I think there's a lot of similarities between kind of the SaaS world of product development and the stakeholders and the areas of expertise that you need compared to hardware. Uh, the titles are a little bit different. The areas of expertise are a little different. But I, I think to answer your first question, I was pretty technical. I understood the product. I understood uh, how it was supposed to work, how it was supposed to be installed. But I was certainly no engineer. And I think uh, an area where product managers can get caught up sometimes is trying to be the subject matter expert in an area that they don't need to be a subject matter expert in. I think that product managers, uh, I know myself at least, I've, I've 
really had to choose my battles and choose where I spend my time. That's why you have an engineering department that's great at laying out a circuit board and getting it all to work. Um, that's why you have mechanical engineers that are going to design the heat sink or the housing or something uh, to, and make it functional. I think what you have to do as a product manager is figure out how to connect all of those people and get them all working on the same project at the same time with common goals and a common understanding of what you're trying to achieve. And then uh, yielding to those people that have that subject matter expertise in the different areas that you need. Steve Jobs talks about customer research and the problem with customer research is sometimes people don't know what they want until you show it to them. Mm -hmm. And given that these were sort of highly innovative products using technologies that, that, that the average person wouldn't even understand to begin with, and your role is to sort of package them up into something that could be valuable, can you talk a little bit about the customer development process in that? How do you ask somebody if this is a good idea when they probably don't know what you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, it's a great point. I think, I think that in, in almost all product categories, regardless of what type of product it is, and whether it's a, a tangible product you can hold in your hands or it's a piece of software, you're always going to have customers in varying degrees of how frequently they're going to interface with the product, how emotionally attached they are to the product. So we would rely heavily on what we kind of called super users, the people who lived and breathed the products that we created. At Rockford, I, I kid you not, we had people tattooing our brand logo on their arms. Really? They were that <laughs> emotionally attached. Is any Rockford listeners out there with tattoos, please email them to at 100 product managers. I think you're going to be surprised at how many submissions you get. Actually. Wow. <laughs> we'll throw in the show notes. So okay. those folks, um, they, they provided a lot of great input to us. In many cases, they were the dealers, they were the distributors, they were the installers of those products. So they had uh, a, a unique perspective on what we were building and what we were selling. Um, they'd provide us with very candid, but also very kind of self-serving feedback. You know, I, I would like that to be blue instead of red. Um, I would like that to be bigger or smaller instead of the size that it is now. I'd like it to have 1,500 watts instead of 150 watts. I, I think that we also used focus groups where we would bring people in purposefully that weren't familiar with our product and would ask them to choose from one of maybe 10 mechanical designs or uh, different aesthetic directions that we might be going with a piece of equipment. Um, and we would kind of collate all of that feedback, both from people who knew exactly what we did and were very familiar with our products, to also users that uh, had no idea who we were or what our products were used for. That was all information that went into uh, the research that we performed. I think uh, something that I've found interesting over the years, though, is that you don't always need feedback directly tied to your product. Sometimes uh, in fact, I think more frequently than sometimes, there's surrogate information out there that can help you make decisions. Um, trends that are happening in the electronics field in general will, will have some influence on what people want from your specific type of electrical product or, or, uh, or software product or any number of things. I think if we think about 
the influence that modern design has had across the board, whether it's a washer and dryer or a refrigerator, or whether it's the iPhone that we all carry around in our pocket or, or something along those lines. I think that um, trends in general, uh, what is popular and uh, what is, is gaining in popularity all speaks to what people want. So sometimes you can take a lot of cues from just the general direction that other industries or other niches uh, are heading to inform your own design philosophy and what you want to build for your customers to kind of anticipate what's going to be hot next right. as opposed to what's hot now. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's. I'm glad you bring it up. It speaks to the ongoing pulse of market research that is so much part of the role. It's You always have to be trying new things, seeing what else is out there, looking beyond just your direct competitors, as you say, for, for clues in the market of, of where we could cobble together something that makes sense. I'm curious, let's now go jump ahead to the boxes are at Best Buy and they're collecting dust. Mm -hmm. The sales folks can't move this because you say the customers are confused. What happens at that point? Is it just like, well... That was a loss. How do you, what does the company do once you've shipped all of this physical product and it doesn't connect with the market? Right. I think what you start to do is you start to explore the, the specific reasons why it's not connecting to the market. You try and gain an understanding of whether it's something that can be trained or taught, whether it's something that just needs to be presented in a slightly different shade or in a slightly different manner. Um, so with those products, what we found was that although the, the purchasing audience here in the United States wasn't snapping it up as quickly as they could, the same kinds of markets in other countries were absolutely primed for that product. And so what we ended up doing was taking a lot of that product and selling it to uh, the EMEA to Asian countries, even to South Africa, where the, the point in time on that kind of trend line of MP3s being understood and MP3s kind of becoming something that you only use your iPod for, and then even the trend line where that became um, high-fidelity versions of electronic uh, audio files used in higher-end home theater systems to replace you remember the old CD carousels where you could get 100 or 500 <laughs> CDs into a carousel. You know, MP3s um, really did kind of change the face of audio across so many industries, but it didn't all happen in the same place at the same time. Right. And there were markets that, uh, that, that weren't uh, as, as far into that kind of evolutionary path as, as the U.S. was. So we found a great home for those products um, overseas. So you pivoted. We pivoted. <laughs> and it's interesting. I mean, it, it's we talk a lot about the, the launch then sell conundrum, again, in internet product space, because there is so much opportunity to integrate feedback, to, to iterate rapidly, which, which we'll talk about. But the place you almost never want to be in with an internet product is we've built it and now it's the wrong thing. And you're there and you're saying, well, there is still a way, even with manufacturing kind of being done, even with product uh, physically shipped, there's an opportunity to, to revisit the strategy and, and try to find a success. There is. 
And at the time that we had launched that product, it required purchasing other products from us as well, which meant that we were unable to address some of the market. Uh, we made some design changes to that product and made it accommodate any audio system that you wanted to put it in, even if you didn't purchase those other bits and pieces from us, uh, from the company. And that, again, opened it up to a wider audience that had said, you know, I'd be interested in that if it was packaged a little differently, if it was uh, more like an accessory that I could add to my car and less of the centerpiece. And so we went on to have pretty great success with that product. But um, to your point, it took, it took changing it and massaging it and responding to changes in the market, changes in what our customers wanted and how they wanted to purchase and use the product uh, for us to finally kind of strike gold with it. And I, I think, you know, one of the great things about product management is if you do it long enough, you can pack on all of those hard lessons learned and hopefully not repeat them painfully again. <laughs> right. Well, it really does shine a light on this fundamental distinction. And I think you've got a lot of experience in this, which is you're, you know, you talk about an 18-month product development cycle. You talk about creating a product that, except for a few super users giving you a few clues, is really a gamble because the technology is new. And you don't really have any choice other than to build it and deploy it and see because you're, you're, you're a year and a half in front of the go-to-market, which is just so different. So can you talk about how that, I mean, I guess it's, this would be true in, in fashion, it's true in automotive, it's obviously true in electronics. How does that change the product manager role when you're trying to, you're solving problems today for something that won't be known in the customer's world for another year and a half or two years? Cars, I think it's like seven or something. <laughs> Indeed. It's, yeah, these very long product cycles make it very challenging, and, and you're right. Uh, in many cases, it is just a gamble, and, and you have to wait and see how the market's going to accept your product. But I think understanding the, the changing landscape within your own competitive space is important. When you, when you become a subject matter expert on your own market that you're serving with your products, um, you understand pretty quickly uh, who the competitors are that are setting trends, who the competitors are that are following them. And um, I think that you aspire to be one of those trendsetters as a company. I think one of the luxuries we had at Rockford was that we were a trendsetter. We had the luxury of being able to say what is cool and what's going to be cool a year from now. And so then that empowered us to go and build those products. Um, a lot of it was the design team that we had uh, a lot of it was our kind of incredibly passionate approach and you know, no apologies attitude towards the products that we built and our understanding of who our customers were. We were not trying to sell product to middle-aged moms. We weren't trying to sell product to uh, my grandfather. We were trying to sell product to 16 to 35-year-old males and so we got to understand what it was that they wanted and then also partner with other companies that had kind of similar DNA to ours, even if they were not in our industry whatsoever, to understand um, what's out on the horizon, what 
you know, what kind of look, what kind of performance, what kind of technology is gaining traction right now that will be at a point of maturity in 18 months as our product finally hits the shelves that it's, it's solving a problem, it's desirable, it's cool, um, it's something that people have got to have. If I look back on, on those years where I was building physical electronics products and it was taking a, a year or two years to get them developed, there were a lot of successes and there were a lot of failures. And I think that uh, if that's the kind of industry that you're in, as long as you understand that that's a reality of product management and of manufacturing, that you're going to have a couple of home runs and you're going to strike out a few times as well, and you kind of bake that into the risk mitigation that you do, um, into your budgets, that you can protect yourself a little bit. Um, I think it's, I think it's a utopian idea that every product you're ever going to build is going to be wildly successful and make lots of money and make lots of customers happy. I mean, that's the dream that's that the, the dream. media dangles in front of young entrepreneurs and says, Instagram did it and so can you. Absolutely. But the reality is, is that it's a battle every step of the way. Um, and sometimes seemingly insignificant decisions like what color LED light should we put on this have massive consequences, both good and bad. I think what you start to identify is that there are things about a product that you can rapidly change in reaction to how the market is accepting of what you've just built. Colors, uh, packaging, the messaging that you wrap around that product, how you present it in a display at a big box store like Best Buy. Right. I, I think that you can understand that those things are still rather malleable and that you can move pretty quickly on changing something like you know, a blue LED to a white LED. And I, I remember there being a couple of years in consumer electronics there where everything with a white LED was cool and new and you had to have it. And, and everything with an, a red or a blue LED was last year. And <laughs> it, was, it was kind of falling out of, uh, out of favor with people. And so if you can still change those things to react to uh, challenges that you see in market acceptance of your products, um, you can take something that maybe doesn't roar out of the gates as a new product and turn it into you know, that, that sleeper product that takes off, but maybe not immediately after, after you launch it. Yeah, how much wiggle room do you get? Because what I'm hearing you describe is this idea that we've designed and built and shipped X number of units mm -hmm. and we're ready to ship X number more based on orders but if the feedback comes back there's a certain amount of wiggle room to go back and modify designs or swap out some component parts before we ship the next batch. What kind of timeline are we talking about there? Let's say you get a first round of units on the shelves, it's not performing as hoped, you do a little investigation you determine maybe a white LED light is, is the trick. Is that like you get back to the office and thousands more get pushed out the line? Or is that another three or four months before you can get that next order out? Well, it really depends. If, if, if white LEDs are so popular that everybody's ordering them, it may be weeks before you can get any shipped from the factory that built them. So, uh, and, and then also uh, you, you have inventory issues to deal with. You have... Uh, manufacturing issues that, that need to be addressed. It is very much like 
trying to turn a battleship when you're dealing with products that are being produced in high quantities, in, in high volumes. Simple, rather insignificant changes that you might think to yourself, well, that should only take a couple of days to start cranking them out with this change implemented uh, can take weeks um, and, and in some cases even months um, or might not be financially feasible to do at all in any way. So I, I think there's a little bit of wiggle room, but it, it really comes down to such a you know, case-by-case case situation, depending on the product, depending on... I mean, we had a lot of luxuries because we were manufacturing product ourselves in the U.S. I, I had uh, the ability to walk from uh, my engineering department, you know, 50 steps over to the actual production lines where we were doing surface mount and final production and testing of products that we were then shipping out to our dealers and distributors and big box retailers. Uh, so I had the ability, I think, to force wiggle room, even sometimes when wiggle room didn't exist, um, to be able to kind of have a stop the presses moment and say, you know, if we ship these the way that they are, we're not going to be as well served as if we're able to implement this minor change. What are the risks? What's the financial impact? But then what's the size of the prize that we can go win by by implementing this change, by making this making this change. And sometimes it nets out to be worthwhile, and sometimes you find that uh, it would have been nice to make that change, but it's just not going to be in the cards for, for this particular product or, or at this time. Right. We'll try for a home run next time. That's right. Yeah. Um, and, and I think I, I don't want to beat up on any of the products that I've done over the years. I think even in some cases where I didn't feel like that product was successful, it's usually in comparison to products that were just wildly successful. You know, can't build enough, can't satisfy the demand for them. Uh, but, it, you know, most products, uh, if you've gotten to the point where you've spent 18 months building something, uh, shame on you if you haven't done your homework to understand what the experts think, what the analysts and the reviewers, the people that, you know, do have influence from the top down uh, say about the direction that you're taking it if you haven't put it out in front of focus groups and you haven't put it out in front of your power users, um, if you haven't used it yourself and, and been, you know, put yourself in the shoes of a customer and looked at it from their perspective and then gathered feedback from friends and family. I, I can't tell you how many times I had friends and family that said, please stop asking me questions <laughs> about car stereo equipment. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> but all that feedback in aggregate is, uh, is, is what could keep you from making big mistakes that ultimately cost your company lots of money, uh, can cost your, your brand equity, um, uh, you know, some of the kind of gloss and shine that it has, um, and, and potentially even cost you your job if you, if you really go off the rails there and do something wrong. Yeah, I mean, it, it, what you're speaking about is I, I say to students a lot, first day of class, Curiosity is a fundamental quality of product managers because if you're already in the mindset of I know, you'll never look under all of the rocks that you need to look under. You'll never start to think differently about situations. And it is through asking questions, even of unexpected people, you know, even the people who know nothing about car stereos have information to offer if you can ask the right questions. Absolutely right. And, and I think a, a lot of times it's, it's the feedback that you get, not from those challenging technical details, but it's the 
overall user experience. It's the emotions that a product will invoke with somebody. It's touching the volume knob and spinning it for the first time and saying, I love the way that feels. Right. I, you don't have to be an expert to be able to have that kind of an emotional connection to a product. And I think those are some of the big mileposts and the, the road signs that you're looking for, that you're either on the right path or that maybe you're not and you need to rethink something. Well, I'm lingering a little bit here because like you, I grew up in love with electronics mm -hmm. as well. And I think it's, it's easy to now chart back the path doesn't look as clean as yours, which was, I love cars and I love electronics, so here I go. But it was definitely an early indicator of my desire to be part of designing and building and, and being in technology. So, you know, I thank you for letting me geek out here with you. Oh, absolutely. But one of the things I think is interesting about your career in particular, so you spent a long time in this space and you built hundreds of products, which is not a common experience for product managers nowadays as well, right? right? You, you might have somebody even in a parallel world that has been doing it for 10 or 15 years, but has maybe only owned two or three products in that journey. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about how, like, do you fall in love with a product and like, you know, home run or not home run, you fall in love with it and it's like you have to let it go on to the next thing? I mean, what is that like? I think you hit it right on the head. You fall in love with every product that you pour yourself into. I think that is probably one of the most significant marks of a person who belongs in product management is I have sent hundreds of products to store shelves and I have end of life so many of those products that I'm emotionally attached to as well. And, you know, uh, I, I think that there, there's this bittersweet kind of, you know, maybe stages of grief that, that you go through <laughs> with products as you, as you ideate on something, as you create that first kind of napkin sketch of what it is that you think would be a cool new thing to build. Um, that also happens to uh, resonate with maybe uh, hopefully the industry that you're in and the kind of technology that the company you're working for is good at making, you then spend uh, uh, an inordinate amount of time poring over the smallest of details. You know, uh, machine head screws or Phillips head screws, should they be stainless steel? Should they be black anodized? Um, you know, should the, the packaging be a four color litho or should we just go for a, you know, kind of toned down, you know, craft paper and black ink look, you know, every facet of that product is, is, is yours and, um, or, or yours and your, your teams. And so you feel like a very proud parent when you do finally get those products out. And I, I think that uh, one of the, the most emotional attachments that you're going to have with products is when you actually see people using them. I, mean, I, was, I was as guilty of walking into Best Buy and just kind of creepily hovering in the aisles <laughs> where my products were. And in looking plain clothes in on the weekends. Clothes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And watching people, you know, look at the package and read the technical specs and flip it around in their hands and go through that kind of purchasing decision that we all do when we think about buying anything and then take it home. And when you're lucky, maybe write a review about it do a blog post about it, and then get to read the experience that somebody had with the product that you had spent so much time with. It really is like 
going to a, I, I have two daughters myself, it, it reminds me a lot of going to a parent-teacher conference for one of my kids is you get to hear other people talk about something that you've invested so much of your life <laughs> and your love into. And uh, sometimes it's tough not to take things personally when there's suggested improvements, things they don't like, but those are just priceless data points to be able to get to and learn from in the next iteration. What, uh, so you, you mentioned that when you did eventually move on from the world of electronics, and I know it wasn't just all with Rockford, but so I'm sort of summarizing a, a decade of your life. I hope you don't mind. I've just summarized oh, a fine. decade of your that's life. Fine. But you went into SAS after that. I did. And I'm curious, because you spent so much time in the world of physical product and because the process is so in-depth, as you've described here, what was that like going from that journey into building software? Uh, it was it was shockingly different. Shockingly different. You like these people just sitting around doing nothing. I mean, they don't. The, these people these people <laughs> go off and write a little bit of code and then come back twenty minutes later with something that I had just asked for, and I I, I don't understand how it's happening so rapidly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I need to to make them prove it that they just did something. No, it's it. I had I had not expected that things moved as rapidly as they do in SaaS software. Um, I had not anticipated that so many of the challenging areas of electronics or hardware product management just didn't exist in the world of SaaS, but that there were these entirely new challenges that I had never faced before, that I hadn't gained the benefit of experience and history with to know what to do and what not to do. So you were a beginner all over I was, again. I was kind of a beginner all over again. It was as if I had started my career all over after a decade of learning what I thought were going to be the, the lessons I would apply to SaaS software. But it was very different. And, and I think that uh, my first foray into SaaS software was also framed in, 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 in a pretty challenging way as well. I joined a company that had been a professional service provider for 25 years. Uh, they were very good at providing kind of human-based professional services. You know, we have the expertise. We will work for you. We will give you information. We will do things and, and, and then charge you money for it. And the founder of that company um, wanted to create a SaaS software product that replace the professional services they, they would, had been doing. You know, turn it into a, an automated piece of software that the customer could use instead of hiring them for the professional services. So translating something that was a human-based professional service into a SaaS-based software application was very challenging. And at the time, the company also didn't have a software development team. Uh, so uh, we had a lot of work to do. We built a team. Uh, we interviewed stakeholders. Uh, we uh, invited lots and lots of existing customers and the kinds of customers we thought we would get by building a SaaS software product into our offices to ask them questions, to interview them. Um, I went out and uh, kind of embedded myself in the offices with the people that we had targeted as our customers just to live a life in, in their shoes and see what kinds of problems that they ran into, um, where they spent the majority of their time and how I could maybe make their life and their work a little bit easier. That all eventually became a set of requirements, which then kind of became a set of functional specifications, which then became design documents and ultimately became a SaaS software product 
you know, that entire development process probably also took nearly a year. But what I realized is that the entirety of the product is as malleable as those very few things that I could change in that small wiggle room space with the electronics that I had been working on for so long. Changing uh, the names of a button in the software, uh, deciding to move to you know, drop-down lists as opposed to uh, text fields, uh, the, the departure away from um, something that required customers install software locally to a fully cloud-based uh, application were all things that we were able to implement so rapidly after we had built the first kind of uh, offering, the first version of the software. And I was absolutely hooked. <laughs> I, I was hooked on the fact that we could see changing needs and changing problems and the ways that customers were using our product and then react to that so rapidly and be able to come back to them in a matter of hours or days with something that had solved um, uh, an obstacle with a completely different way of interfacing with the software or with a whole new module that added functionality that wasn't there before. Um, and, and I think that for me, um, having spent so long with products that did take a long, long time um, from inception to completion uh, that it, it, it was just highly addictive to be able to move so rapidly through the development phases and, and respond so quickly to, uh, to, uh, to changing needs and desires. Talk to us about your latest venture. My latest venture, I, I think, is probably the most exciting venture. I'm having more fun right now in product management than I ever have. I am at a tech startup in the cybersecurity space based out of Carlsbad, California. It's called uh, ThreatStop. And I joined ThreatStop because their product and the way that they're trying to solve a very big problem in the world of, uh, of information and IT security uh, is, is one of the most innovative approaches that I've seen in a really long time. I felt when I first looked at the company like I was seeing you know, Uber three years before Uber launched when it was just still an idea or, or Lyft or, or any number of highly successful things that was maybe just slightly ahead of its time but um, is just a no-brainer way to solve a problem. And it's really the first time that I've worked for a truly VC-backed tech startup. And that means wearing a lot of hats. Uh, that means working a lot of long hours. Uh, it means everything you try and accomplish is challenging and I love every second of it. I, uh, I've brought uh, four new products to market in the last year and a half. And um, some of them were completely new products from scratch and some were products that I don't think anybody at the company would have envisioned us having or even being in a direction that we would have gone a couple of years ago. But it's, it's, it's because we're still kind of doing the product market fit dance and um, I, 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 we're learning lessons, we're making improvements um, and we're responding to what uh, the market wants. I, I think that I also happen to, uh, to choose to come work in an industry where the competitive space and the problems that customers are trying to be solve are, are, are trying to solve is, is in constant flux. Unlike most industries out there, the realities of the, you know, what your product should do and 
the reason why people are buying your products uh, don't change from day to day or week to week. But in cybersecurity, um, there can be uh, an attack type, uh, uh, whether it's something like ransomware or something like phishing that does not exist today but might exist two months from now and needs to have entirely new products and approaches thought up to combat them as rapidly as possible because uh, breaches are happening, are showing up in the headlines, having lost sensitive customer data uh, almost every day now. And so it's a space that needs great products and great innovation to solve those problems, but the problems themselves are changing almost as rapidly as, as, as I've ever seen. And these are also digital products. This is software-based solutions. Software-based well. solutions. You never, right. you never. Once you got a, a a glimpse into the easy life of of soft product, you were like, "What was I doing all of those years?" What was I doing all those? Now I have time. I can see the kids. I can take them to the recitals. And no, I'm just kidding. Of course, there's there's a lot of stresses and there's you, a lot of stresses. And actually, I I uh, if I look down. Um, if I look down the pipeline over the next couple of years, um, I would not be shocked if both software and hardware come back into uh, into my job um, uh, where I am. You know, I, I think that uh, uh, there's a lot of benefits of having completely SaaS-based, cloud-based software that you install on other people's products, other people's hardware. Um, but there's also opportunities sometimes to take a step back and say, you know, maybe we could do something better there and, um, and build our own hardware that our own software runs on as well. Um, so no promises. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, I, I, I'm not writing off hardware product development for the rest of my career. That's, that's for certain. All right. So ThreatStop is the place to, to keep an eye on for Joe and, and innovation Indeed. to come. Um, to go back a moment you talked when you did make that jump from physical product into soft product, you talked about there being a bunch of new challenges that you weren't sort of ready for. Can you remember some of them, those that being a beginner again and going, oh, I don't know this. I'm not oh, in this world. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I know if I were to tear open most pieces of electronics, a small flashlight, I can identify just about everything that's in there. I know what most components are doing. I, I can understand why a, an integrated circuit might be on that board. I can, I can, I can kind of, you know, figure it out. When I started to first pull apart software, I had no idea why anything was there, much less what it was doing. I, I had no understanding of why someone might choose a SQL database over a Mongo database for a particular use case. I, you know, I, I, I was not an expert in the field of security. I had been a hobbyist looking at this industry from afar for a very long time. So there was a lot of new technical ground to cover for me. Uh, a lot of questions that I had to go and ask, uh, a lot of white papers and a lot of books that I had to go and read to at least get to a place where I didn't feel like I was just making it all up. I think that uh, although I was able to draw a lot of parallels between the product development process and the stakeholders, the players, the functional departments that are involved in the product development process for hardware, and although software had some parallels there, uh, there, there were some similarities, it was, it was also very different. I didn't have uh, uh, 
mechanical engineers. I had UX designers. I didn't have electrical engineers. I had software developers. I uh, didn't have to worry about um, physical packaging of my product, but the user experience packaging and the delivery packaging of that software was similar but, but very different. I had to understand what the phases of product development were that impacted software releases. I had to understand what a release cycle and a release schedule was like and why you don't ship new product updates for software on a Friday before you go <laughs> on a long three-day weekend. So uh, lots of lessons. And, and I, uh, you know, as long as I had been in product management, I, I uh, you know, I, I remember thinking to myself, this is hard. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. Um, this is so unfamiliar and strange, and yet uh, I, I think what I found was uh, that it appealed to my curiosity as a product manager. It was new information I could go and gorge on and try and soak up and learn from others, and it certainly brought new challenges. And I think after a dozen maybe or so years of doing product management and feeling like I had my hands around it, like I understood it, I was ready for some new challenges. I was ready for something to shake me up and make me uncomfortable. And you disrupted yourself. I disrupted myself, and, uh, and it's worked out so far. It's, um, it's very different. I think that uh, any product manager, regardless of what field you're in, whether it's tangible physical products that you work with, uh, or whether it's SaaS software, or whether it's mobile apps, uh, or whether it's a professional service. You know, I, 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 I would uh, certainly recommend exploring other fields, other walks of life to product managers out there because uh, you never know if you're going to love a new space and a new way of delivering and a new way of developing in, until you've tried it. Well, I think that's what's inspiring about having you on the show is I, I hope for folks who are listening in who are either working in, in the physical product space or have thought about it because it's, it is different. And I, I think you're shining a light on a quality, not maybe of every product manager, but it is consistently true of people and why they end up in this space. We want to touch everything and know everything and do a bit of everything. And, and I give this advice to, to folks if they solicit it. I try not to go around just offering unsolicited advice, but if, if they solicit advice about what's the right place for me, I think it is important to look at yourself and say, are you the type of person that thrives getting elbow deep into a bit of everything? And if yes, you need to be in an unstructured, fast-paced, half-baked environment because the more scaled an organization is, the more divided the processes are, there's a protocol for that. You know, you're not just going to go and disrupt the factory floor. There's a whole assembly line that's going on. But then there's equally environments where it's like, I don't even know if we have a policy for that. I guess let's just wing it. So knowing about your own self is an important part of figuring out where to be. And then as you say, trying different things, you know, if you get really, really comfortable, it's like flip a table, go do something else be a beginner again exactly yeah. exactly and and i think you know if i when i look back on my career i i spent some time in a senior marketing role i spent some time in a senior sales role there was one company i was with where uh, we developed a, a product 
and um, I just didn't have the sales team to go and sell that product. Uh, so I became the sales guy, uh, and I was very passionate about the product. It worked in my favor. I was able to to make my numbers as a sales guy, as foreign as that even sounds now to say it. Sure. But having having experienced what it's like to be one of the stakeholders that I've had to work with, to be on the other side of the table, to be the marketing person saying, I wish I had a product manager to give me these, you know, bullet points, the the you know the the technical specs to give me the ammo I need to create a piece of marketing collateral for this product to be the salesperson and say you know boy I wish I had a product manager right now to do these things uh, really enlightened me on what it is that's most important that I can provide to those people for the rest of my career um, you know how can I be uh, supportive and empowering to my marketing department to my sales department um, and you're absolutely right. That means getting elbow deep into just about everything, whether it's doing you know, financial calculations on a product development effort to understand, you know, does this have the potential to be profitable for us? Should we go and do it? To be able to say, here's the most important things to market about this product uh, because I understand the market that we're selling to. Um, all the way back to my roots to be able to sit down with the support team and say these are going to be the common problems that people run into and here's how you solve it for them. Uh, having an opportunity to live uh, in different roles that are all kind of customers of product management has made me I think probably a, a, a more competent and more capable and maybe a more well-rounded product manager and and has been a big part of the fun as well. Joe, what advice do you have for somebody listening in that wants to get into the space? I think my first piece of advice is find an industry to work in where you like the products, where, where you think of yourself as a customer, perhaps even. Um, it's going to go a long way into helping you make the right decisions from a product management standpoint as if, if you are emotionally attached to that product. Be a relationship builder. I think it's probably one of the most important capabilities of a product manager is to be able to go and build bridges, even where bridges have been previously burned or where bridges have never existed. Product, good product management is such a big, you know, cross-functional, macro-level effort that involves every department and, 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 uh, and every person that um, having relationships with those people, um, with those departments, pays off in spades when you're trying to get things done. And I think probably the last couple are uh, never be afraid to voice product ideas, ideas for enhancements, ideas for improvements. Um, I like to think of everybody that I live with, work with, and see on a daily basis, whether it's a person giving me coffee at Starbucks or whether it's my wife and kids at home or whether it's my coworkers or external customers, I am constantly bouncing ideas off of people to see what they think. And I know that you know, nine out of 10 of them, uh, you know, nothing will ever happen, but it, it'll still be information that helps color a much larger picture uh, and, and helps inform how to make better decisions. I think the last piece of advice that I've got for people that wanna try and get into this industry is, you know, join beta testing teams be the person that reviews products that you buy, you know, on a blog, online, on the company's website that you bought it from. 
think about problems that need to be solved and how you would solve them if you could go and build something to do that with. And maybe last but not least is just jump in. It can be scary. Um, you know, product management is, is not a career path that I think most people understand. I know for myself, every company I've ever worked at has had a different expectation and a different idea of what a product manager is and sometimes 50 different titles for that role. But jumping in and, um, and, and just trying it to see if you like it is, 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 uh, is sometimes easier than, than you'd think. And um, it can start like I did with just providing feedback about what I liked and didn't like about the products that the company I was working for was making. And there's lots of avenues to be able to start providing that kind of information I know I said last but not least, but I think the most important <laughs> thing a, a product manager can do is get out of their office, right. you know, not be confined by the walls and, um, you know, not, not do product management in a vacuum with people that you see every single day and that you work with every day. Uh, the real answers, the real brilliant ideas and real innovation are going to happen when you get out there and you actually, you actually talk to customers and, and uh, you, you go and see what it's like to work a day in their life or uh, to live a day in their life and uh, what kind of challenges and problems they face and how you might be able to solve them. Yeah, this is, this is something that I bring up a lot as well, which is you have to learn how to do the manual work before you can leverage technology and process to scale it. And in, in the same context of customer research and development, sure, use Typeform, use... Uh, survey monkey and get a thousand inputs but if you don't know how to construct effective questions then all you've done is sent a thousand bad questions out so practice practice talking to people first absolutely yeah. I think that uh, you know most product managers and there's there's a lot of flavors of product manager there's certainly technical product managers who maybe don't need to interface out there with customers as much but most product managers are are, are are people people they like talking to people I love talking to people and I think that uh, uh, that's that's one of the attributes of great product managers is that they're not afraid to go out there and just have a conversation you know to um, to stop somebody walking down the street and ask them about the product that they're holding in their hand and what they like about it and what they hate about it and why they bought it and what what else they considered and that's even when it's not your product that's in their hand. <laughs> it's somebody else's. You know, I, I think that it just helps you understand, you know, the kind of the, the psychology that underpins all of the decisions about what to use, what to buy, how to use it, when to stop using something and change. Um, you know, that to me, I think uh, now going on 15 years later is probably some of the stuff that interests me the most. I've read all of the books I could find on, you know, project management and product management and how to implement processes that aren't overly cumbersome, that are efficient and timely, how to, how to build processes that don't exist or improve ones that do, how to do the blocking and tackling for product management. I, um, you know, I've read a lot of great books over the years and, and, and now I think what I really uh, get excited about is are, are, is information and lessons to be learned that are maybe a couple steps removed from direct product management, but yet have such influence and such impact on it. Like, you know, 
what makes things popular? Why do things get trendy? Uh, it's that, you know, that fine balancing act between things that are familiar and yet innovative at the same time, but not too innovative and not too familiar. It, you have to strike that kind of perfect balance. And, um, and, and so now I look to try and apply some of that to what I do as a product manager in, in my role today. Do you, you talk about resources extensively either from, you know, the canon of classic product management books or ideas or in this newer terrain that you're describing of, you know, psychology-based, anything that you want to contribute to our ever-growing list of, you know, I say books, blogs, podcasts, anything that you think is interesting and, and worthwhile for our listeners? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that, um, you know, find and consume uh, every magazine and piece of trade publication for the industry that you're in. Um, I, I, I try and actually carve out um, almost an hour every day uh, just to read what's going on in my industry, whether that's going to Owler or Crunchbase and reading about the comings and goings of people and press releases for the industry that I'm in or reading something from Forrester, IDC, or Gartner uh, to understand um, uh, what the analysts think um, about uh, the industry that, that, that I happen to be in. You know, the classics, uh, Haynes and Steve Blank and, um, you know, Steve Jobs and so many of the other kind of thought leaders in the industry have put out, you know, uh, product managers, you're so lucky today. <laughs> 20 years ago, there was nothing that you could read on good product management. Yeah, yeah, you know, it, was, um, it was a little ahead of its time maybe still then. But now, um, you know, you can, you can open uh, Amazon and go to the book section and type in product management, and, and, and there's more material there than you could probably ever realistically read in, in lifetime so um, pick up things that that seem interesting to you um, I just finished reading a book uh, by an author uh, named Derek Thompson called Hitmakers um, last week and uh, it, it touches on something I just mentioned which is you know why do things get popular um, what makes for a hit whether it is a fashion trend or whether it's a new piece of electronics um, or whether it's um, something maybe even uh, larger scale than that, like um, a change towards renewable energy versus fossil fuels. Um, and in that book, he, uh, I think, does a fantastic job of uh, helping people understand that it is a balancing act between things that aren't scary, that seem similar to other products that they've used or other trends that they've followed, um, and yet also have this edge of innovation to them where it's obviously progressive. It's, it's, a, it's, um, it's, it's not been done before and yet isn't so innovative that it's scary and unfamiliar. And um, those are lessons that I'm trying to apply to, to ThreatStop where I am now because we do have a very innovative product. In fact, maybe too innovative sometimes solving some real problems but doing it in a way that is maybe unexpected for some people and so trying to find that balance where maybe we can make it a little more familiar to get the 
adoption that we need, but also keep the innovation to solve the problem from a technical standpoint in a better way than it's being solved currently, I think is hitting the sweet spot where I'll have another home run. I, I love your approach. I love listening to you speak. I'm mindful that uh, we probably need to wrap it up here, but one last question before we go, Joe. Is there a personal mantra or professional mantra, something that you, little bit of wisdom that you use to guide yourself in the world that you want to leave um, me and our listeners with before we go? You know, I think one of my mantras is, and this goes for my life as well as my career, is um, it's kind of the golden rule of, you know, understanding understanding others, understanding where they come from, understanding uh, what makes them happy, what makes them unhappy, trying to put yourself in their shoes with almost every decision that you're going to make that is going to ultimately impact them as a user or a customer of your product or your service. I think that if you can continually think and focus on why you're doing this and who you're doing it for as a product manager, um, you'll find that you rarely go wrong. The only replacement improvement for that is actually asking and talking to them. Yeah, a friend of mine used to say, uh, the golden rule is uh, treat others as you would like to be treated, but the platinum rule is treat others as they would like to be treated. And it sounds like a great saying. that's uh, what you bring to, to your life, to your product management role. Obviously, you've been tremendously successful. Thank you for being here on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You're listening to 100 PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you haven't been to our site, please check it out. We have so many great resources for anybody looking to learn more about product management or starting a technology business. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. Join me here. We've got a new conversation every Tuesday. We'll see you next time.